I've got the bull that's really a seal. Ooh, and I've got half a Daniel. (laughs) (laughs) Game fight! Hello there, welcome to Date Fight. It's the 8th of January and it's the thing where we do the thing where we pitch the historical events against each other. Yes, he's Thingy McBob and I'm Who's It What McBoojama Flip and together we will be taking two of the finest historical hairs and racing them against the hounds of fact until they collapse and are torn apart for your entertainment. I feel like you started writing these. I know, I did. That was. Did you not feel the metaphor run out of control as soon as I'd said the word hairs? No, 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 not no. at all. I was completely with you. In which case, I was utterly in command of that entire sentence. Very good. Let's kick off. Mm. Round one! For round one, I will take you back to the 8th of January, 871. And the Battle of Ashdown. Crackles. The most interesting thing about the Battle of Ashdown is that no one knows where Ashdown is. There's still lots of arguments about where Ashdown might be, but it's where King Ethelred and his younger brother Alfred, who you may remember becomes Alfred the Great later on in his life, uh, beat the Vikings uh, back sack and half Dan <laughs> and sent them scurrying back to East Anglia. Well, not back to East Anglia. They owned all of London. They just went back to London. I'm sorry, Was it, are you saying there was a Viking called Backsack? Yeah, it was Backseg, I think. B-A-G-S-E-C-G. Okay. Backsack. And was there also a crag? No, unfortunately not. There probably was. He could have stood on a crag at some point. Mm. So, at that point, uh, the Vikings were in control of pretty much two-thirds of England. They had all of the north of England, all of East Anglia, all of London, and up to Reading. This is when Reading was important. And there were lots <laughs> of fights around Reading. There were about five battles around Reading at the end of 871, 870, beginning of 871. Um, and on the 9th of January, 871, the English actually won one. Hooray! Incredible. Yes, they were all lined up. They all lined up to have the fight. The Vikings on one side in two formations under Backsack and Halfdan, and the <laughs> Anglo-Saxons on the other side under Ethelred and Alfred. At which point, when everyone was lined up, Ethelred said, Oh, you know what? I'm just going to have to go and have a prey because God favours those who pray. <laughs> so he went back to his tent and Alfred said, do you want to come out and help me? Because there's loads of Vikings yeah. out here. And he went, no. Literally. No, I'm I don't. I'm up to I my back sack and Dan. And he literally, literally let King Alfred... No, it wasn't King Alfred at the time. It was King Ethelred. But his younger brother, Alfred, had to go and fight the Vikings on his own and won. Wow. I mean, he did join in at the end, but except to yeah. begin with... I mean, we only we only know that because it was written in Asser's life of Alfred, and Asser was Alfred, one of his friends, and he wrote it like that with his older brother being rubbish. So, back sack and Asser, is that what you're saying? Back sack and Asser, yeah, and half Dan. Mm-hmm. Whole Dan's more expensive. <laughs> uh, they were, what a goal hanger, though. Yeah, precisely. He did. He sort of went, no, just praying, just praying, just praying. No, no. Well, and did he take the credit for it? Was he like, yeah, my prayers probably swung it. It yeah, was probably was my king. prayers did that. He's the king. I'm King Ethelred. We just beat the Vikings. Wow. And then he tried it again two months later and got killed. And then it was King Alfred instead of King Ethelred. And there was cake burning and all that stuff. Amazing. That's a really good one. 
My one is absolutely not a dad. <laughs> I have got the 8th of January, 1454. Ooh. And the Romanus Pontifex. Mm. Uh, it's a papal bull. He's the best pontifex. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, do you know much about papal bull? Most of what the pape says <laughs> is papal bull as far as I'm concerned. It's pretty papal bull. Yeah, so here's what happened was, was, right? So what happened was, mm. was, around 1312... Yes. There was a Genoese navigator called Lancelotto Malocello. And I'm not making it up. I'm not making it up. It's not made up. Lancelotto? A... What's your name? Guinevere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on. All right. Maybe it's Lancelotto. Lancelotto. Anyway, the Portuguese were big fans of the Canary Islands yeah. uh, to trade and raid. Yeah. Uh, including slave raiding. Good times. <laughs> Good time had by all. Yeah, and then the Castilians tried to colonise the Canary Islands in 1402. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then then it was proper pagger. Everyone was sort of trying to have a go at it. Yeah. And by the early 15th century, the Portuguese were looking for a sea route to India mm-hmm. uh, to go and have the spices. They were they needed a base and they were after the Canaries. But anyway, there were disputes between the Portuguese and the Castilians uh, in terms of who gets to have a go on the African coast. Right. And in the end, they were like, we can't settle this. We'll go and ask Dad, <laughs> yeah, i.e. the Pope. Yeah. If you don't agree, I'm going to get the Pope on you. <laughs> I'm telling Pope. <laughs> yeah, basically, they grasped each other up to the Pope. Mm. <laughs> and the Pope said, no one's going outside until we've sorted That's right, you're it. both as bad as each other. Don't make me turn this car around. Sorry, Pope. So what happened was Pope Nicholas the, the Five mm-hmm. wrote some papal bull. Uh, to King King Afonso V of Portugal. Yeah. And Portugal. Uh, he basically said, OK, I've, I've decided, and Portugal can have dominion over all lands south of Cape Bojador mm-hmm. in Africa. So it solved it, did it? Well, the thing was, it sort of solved one problem, um, but w- what it also did was it said, um, you know what, any land out there... That's owned by the Saracen mm. Turks or any non-Christians. Just have it. You can just have it, as far as I'm concerned. And also, wow. if you want to enslave them, just just go for it. That's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> I mean, that'll pro- just take this way. That's probably okay by yeah. me. Yeah, it's not a problem. And yeah. uh, you'll be surprised to hear there's quite a lot of this kind of bull flying around <laughs> uh, because there yeah. there have been all sort of sorts of uh, bits of papal bulls. Um, and in recently, uh, some Native American groups, mm. uh, the Taino and the Onondaga, have called on the Vatican to revoke some of their bulls Ooh. Uh, from 1452, 1455 and 1493. Right. Uh, and the Haudino Sawney countered the papal bulls with the two-row wampum, which... Uh, basically said, you say that you are our father and I am your son. We will not be like father and son, but like brothers. Okay? Hmm. And this wampum belt confirms our words, which I think is pretty reasonable. Yeah, that's fair enough. So wampum is uh, beads made of shells. Okay. It's uh, either the channeled whelk shell or white and purple beads made from the quahog clam. Wow. Generally. There you go. So that wampum treaty, the two-row wampum treaties from 1613, mm. and it was the five nations of the Iroquois, yeah. the Romanus Pontifex, yes. is an extension 
uh, and a follow-up to an earlier piece of bull called the Dumb Diversus. <laughs> In case my earlier racism wasn't comprehensive enough, I have some more racism yeah. here for you. The Dumb Diversus. Uh, and that basically said to <laughs> Afonso V, um, just go for it and conquer the Saracens and pagans and consign them to perpetual servitude. Mm. Because lol. Perpetual servitude, that's... Perpetual servitude. I can't think of any circumstance in the future where this might seem like a bad idea forever. Make that <laughs> servitude perpetual. Yeah. This is yeah. This is not going to be a subject to revision ever. No. In the same way that I can't imagine that Jesus would have had any problem with this at all. Of course not, mate. I mean, I, I I'm curious. Like, if if there is papal infallibility, yeah. What happens when later on they have to say, "Oh, we were a bit fallible there." Didn't they? They had a special. Isn't that what Vatican II is? I think Vatican II, which always sounds like a really ah. incredible action film that the Catholic Church made in the middle of the twentieth century. But Vatican II, the Second Coming, is essentially them going, "Oh, all those ones were awful. Forget those ones. Those ones were rubbish." Is that like Internet two point oh? Yeah, I think you so. Know. <laughs> so it's like they had drop down popes and context sensitive yeah, yeah. popes. Popester instead of Friendster and <laughs> uh, Bebo and or Bebo. Yours is better than mine. I'm glad we opened with yours. Let's do the birthdays. Happy birthday to Stephen Hawking, the motorised genius who was responsible for um, expanding our knowledge of black holes, expanding our concept of the universe, and advertising British Telecom spec savers and go compare. <laughs> It's not infallible. <laughs> Happy birthday to Jan Peterson Cohen. Sorry, Jan Peterson Cohen, who was head of the Dutch East India Company when it was trying to establish its cloven nutmeg monopoly over the 15,000 inhabitants of the Banda Islands. He successfully established a cloven nutmeg monopoly, seeing off the British by killing a mere 14,000 of the 15,000 inhabitants of the islands. Not a happy birthday to you, Jan Peterson Co. But a very Christmassy board game. <laughs> also, happy birthday to Fearless Nadia, Bollywood's first stunt woman. She was an Indian-Australian actress. Um, she picked the name Nadia after an Armenian fortune teller told her to pick a name with an N in in order to be successful. In 1961, she married Homi Wadia, which made her Nadia Wadia. Happy birthday to you, fearless Nadia. Oh, death days. Oh, death, where is thy sting? It's right here for Terry Thomas, who died on this day <laughs> in 1990. Uh, the gap. I love that you've, you're, you're going all pick of the pops for this. <laughs> the gap tooth bounder. Um, Down two. Oh, no, I think someone, either someone's copied his Wikipedia entry from a book, or they have very, lots of really quite odd opinions. So one of the sentences, from the early 1960s, Terry Thomas began appearing in American films, coarsening his already unsubtle screen character. Crikey. That's packing a lot of judgment into one sentence, isn't it? Yeah. And I like that the Americans are coarsening him even further. This has been flagged for review. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I can barely watch the gap. <laughs> His descent into madness and savagery began. Happy birthday to you, Terry Thomas. 
Happy death day to Jim Elliot, who, at the age of 28 in 1956, went to be a missionary to the Haurani people who he was told did not want any visitors. They killed him within moments of meeting him. Happy death day, Jim Elliot, on this day in 1956. <laughs> also happy death day to King Edgar of Scotland, who acceded after the murder of his brother Duncan II, although there are stories that someone else killed him shortly after that, and no one really knows, but this is used apparently as evidence that's very difficult to know anything about what happened in 11th century Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> so happy death day to you, King Edgar of Scotland. Oh, he made a treaty with Magnus Barefoot. I like that bit. Why didn't he have... Yeah. I don't know who oh, Magnus right, yeah. Barefoot is, but... Uh... That's like the old joke, uh, I shot an elephant in my pyjamas. He made the treaty with Magnus Barefoot. Yeah. Why, why, why wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Round two! I got, a, I got a fun January the 8th event for you from 1981. Nice, because I've just looked at my round two and it is not a happy one at all. Perfect. Glad we've managed to spread the duds out. So, yeah. this guy, right, this was in France. Mm-hmm. A guy called Renato Nicolai. Ooh. He's a 55-year-old farmer. Yeah. And he's got a 55-year-old farm. Uh, and doing more of those now. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he's working away on his farm. Yeah. And uh, it's about five o'clock in the uh, afternoon, evening, so pretty much dark. Here's a strange whistling sound. Mm. And it's not John Sparks doing a comedy routine. <laughs> it's a saucer-shaped object. Oh, my goodness. It's about eight feet in diameter, and it lands about 50 yards. That's 46 metres. <laughs> I was going to say in France. Ramonas, yeah. Uh, away. And... <laughs> uh, at a lower elevation than that. Now, according uh, to the witness, mm-hmm. Renato, the device had the shape of two saucers. What? I won't do the whole thing like that. Uh, one inverted on top of the other. Ooh. It must have measured about one and a half metres in height. It was the colour of lead. This device had a ridge all the way around its circumference. Under the machine, I saw two kinds of pieces as it was lifting off. They could be reactors or feet. <laughs> there were also two other circles which looked like trapdoors. Sure, because if you've got UFO technology, you're definitely going to use trapdoors. Yeah, and doors. also one and a half meters. Uh, so these are very small aliens. Yes. These are pretty cute little two-foot aliens. They're Kenny uh, Baker the biggest. rather than the, the Chewbacca yeah. variety. So the, the two reactors yeah. or feet extended about 20 centimetres as eight inches, if you want to be British. It does sound a little bit like a prop that was used in some episode of Doctor Who that was dangled in front of the ca- the camera quite closely. <laughs> anyway, uh, he said that this, this object, which I am sure we all have a very clear picture of in our heads now, mm-hmm. uh, took off almost immediately, rising above the tree line and departing to the northeast, and it left burn marks mm. on the ground where it had supposedly sat with its little <gasps> reactors. That's what it... How many, how many feet did it set, did it have? Or reactors? It had, I think, t- two. Two oh, of them. That doesn't check out with the one we heard about before in that forest in Britain. Yeah. That was three. Yeah, no, well, that was the, that was the S6000. That's the bigger aliens. This is the X6000R. Anyway, basically... This guy, Renato Nicolai, the farmer, goes home and he's like, Oh, I saw this thing, and it had the feet of the reactors, blah, 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 blah. 
anyway, the next day he goes and sees the gendarmerie uh, mm. about it. This is on the advice of his neighbour's wife. <laughs> With whom he was in bed mm-hmm. at the time, okay. being French. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Madame Morin. <laughs> Madame Moron. And the gendarmerie uh, interviewed him and they took some photos. Click. And they collected some soil and plant samples and they sent the case to Japan, the Group d'études des phénomènes mm-hmm. aérospatiaux non identifiés, yeah. as it was known at the time, for review. Now, basically, this is said to be the most well documented UFO sighting of all time. Because uh, they got these soil samples, they got the burn things. Yeah. Uh, so they did this analysis and they said, right, well, we think that... But the only witnesses were French, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they did this analysis. They said, we think that the ground has been compressed by a mechanical pressure of four or five tonnes. It was heated to between 300 and 600 degrees centigrade. Yeah. There were trace amounts of phosphate and zinc in what? the sample material. And... Uh, plants near the landing site, alfalfa, mm. in fact, uh, had lower chlorophyll levels than expected by about 50%. Who took the chlorophyll? And, well, exactly. What do they want the chlorophyll for? Are they turning themselves green? They're already they? little green men. So let's put on our conspiracy theory hat for a second. OK, I had mine to hand. Thank you. Uh, Nikolai the farmer thought uh, this must be an experimental military device. Yeah. Uh, there was a military base nearby. Yeah. But Jepin, uh, the investigators, said, uh, no, we think this might be atmospheric. But what? Come on. Three to six hundred degrees Celsius. Causes of a terrestrial nature. Uh, the, the gendarmerie... Uh, said, no, mate, that's, no, that's, that's tyre marks, mate. That's tyre marks. UFOs. Someone's doing donuts in your field, mate. (laughs) Yeah. Licking all your chlorophyll. In fact, uh, there's a photo of the landing site, and it's not a perfect circle. It's sort of semicircles crossing over each other, and it doesn't tally up with the description made by Nikolai and... um, Nikolai then went on French TV mm-hmm. and said, actually, there were, yeah, there were some vehicles on the road passing by at the time when I, s- anyway, <laughs> did, oh, didn't it rain a lot? And where is Madame Morin? I have to go. Where, what, where is he now? Presumably he's famed as the discoverer of the world's est, first UFO. Il est chez Madame Morin. I don't know. Uh, he's, um, I don't know. He has uh, fallen back into obscurity because it's a conspiracy, man. Yeah. Do you believe? Do do you? What do you think about the whole flying saucers thing? Do you believe in it, or do you do you believe it's a military thing? What do you think? I I think probably there are military devices that they have used that they don't want people to know about because that's sort of the point of secret military devices. Mm. I am also open to the idea that there is almost certainly life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, It seems like it's probably so far away that it's coming here and not making itself known seems weird. But uh, I am open to the idea that there may be aliens who've come to see us, yes, but um, I don't think, I've never seen anything that convinced me that we've got any decent evidence of them. I do think there is that compelling evidence that there's intelligent life elsewhere because they haven't bothered to visit us, <laughs> which you wouldn't do in your right mind, would you? No. I mean, Carl Sagan had that, there is a, an equation 
in which you take all of the number of solar, the number of galaxies we know about, the number of solar systems on average per galaxy, the number of solar systems which contain planets which could sustain life, and you work it out um, as a probability. Um, and the probability is that somewhere in the universe there almost certainly is intelligent life, but it could be so far away no one will ever know about it. It's well, there's that problem, about. isn't there, of actually getting from one galaxy to another, which is that the universe is expanding so fast yeah. that you could actually never catch it. We're moving away from each other so fast that they could uh, be waving at us there's right no now. chance, no oh, chance of, of actually catching up with anybody. Mm. That's, a, that's a jolly one. OK, what do you got? <laughs> Mine's even more jolly. I'd like to go back to the 8th of January 2014. When? You love the fresh history just I lately. I do. I've been going back. I thought I'll pop in the 9th century Battle of Ashdown. There we go, King Alfred. Then we'll nip forward to 2014. At which point... I'm confident I have things in my freezer older than this fact. <laughs> the jury at an inquest found 8-2 to two in favour of the fact that the killing of Mark Duggan was lawful. They found that, despite the taxi driver who'd been driving him saying that he was unarmed and saying that the police had issued no warning before they shot him. They said that, despite the fact that his fingerprints weren't on the gun that was found in the boot of the car, nor was his DNA. It wasn't found on the sock that the gun was contained. It wasn't, nor was his DNA. Nothing was found apart from his fingerprints on the outside of the box. Uh, they found it lawful, despite the fact that two witnesses saw the police throw the gun they found in the boot of the car over a fence nearby. They also saw that the, said that the officer who found the gun looked like he'd found gold. They also said that it was a lawful killing, despite the fact that a police statement from the IPCC said that the gun was deposited over the fence to stop it being a nuisance or a danger to the officers, and despite the fact that the IPCC claimed there was a shootout for minutes before the officers uh, in question shot Mark Duggan. So that is a startling vindication of the brilliance of the British judicial system um, on the 8th of January 2014. I mean, that was a very long time ago, and the world was a very different place now. <laughs> yes, I really should get over it. It's all very easy, isn't it, to, to, to just trot facts out, you know, in that sort of rat-a-tat way that you did there. I mean, and, it is. I mean, it's startlingly and, and, and easy. And almost, you know, cause people to, to draw a conclusion that, that isn't the one that the, the ju jury found. Yeah, that the jury found. Yeah. Yeah. How dare it's you? It's weird how easy that is. It just shows the robustness of the jury system that uh, verdicts can be quite so uh, <laughs> solidly counterfactual. Can you remind me about the Mark Duggan case? This is the one that gave rise to all the riots. Is that right? To the top, yes. So this is before the riots. In this is the uh, the police response to it led to the riots. So the case was um, he we assume what the police said um, was involved in some sort of gang activity. Um, he was transporting a gun in a cardboard box between two places in the back of a minicab. Um, the minicab was stopped by the police. He got out of the cab and they shot him. The police initially claimed that he had shot at them um, and that claim was bolstered by the fact that there was a bullet found in one of the policemen's radios uh, that bullet was later found to have come from another policeman. Mm. Um, so they, the taxi driver, who was probably the closest witness we had, said that he got about two to three feet away from the car. Um, then without warning, they shot him twice in the arm and in the chest. And the IPCC then claimed that there was a firefight and he'd returned fire, which was, of course, not true at all. He 
didn't have a weapon mm. that was on display, which was out um, or, or usable at that point, um, and that led to the riots of 2011. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <clears throat> why 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 do you have to bring all that up, Matt? You know. It's all water under the bridge. Yeah. I remember, uh, this is not related, but only oh, in terms of bringing up really terrible things. Yeah. Uh, as as one must, I think. Yeah. Uh, to shine a light on these these terrible things. Uh, yeah. I was working at BBC Radio Leeds mm. at the time when the Jimmy Savile stuff started to emerge. Oh wow! And that I was had a fun do... place. Oh, it was a lot of fun. Because didn't he uh, start? At, did he start at BBC Radio Leeds? Uh, I don't know. I or was there a Radio Leeds back there? He was certainly in. He, Leeds, he wasn't was he? based he was there. Yeah, figure. I once went to his uh, penthouse suite, uh, which Ooh, was had a unique smell. Uh, a lot of cigar. <laughs> was it? Mothballs? It was cigar and bo and dried. I don't know. Anyway, uh, he had and he was in his tracksuit and everything, and it was a very weird atmosphere. Anyway, that was long before any of the stuff broke. But as the story came out, I had to host a phone in on Radio Leeds, and mm. overwhelmingly. Uh, people were phoning up saying, "Don't muddy the waters." He did a lot for charity, and it was like, <laughs> "Well, I think we might need to explore this actually." And uh, yeah, why was he interested in the specific charities he was interested yes. in? Yes, why? It's almost as if so. <laughs> so well done, Nat, for continuing Bring to be us all down. On my hope, no. In, in all honesty, my my hope is that uh, this podcast will give rise. To a new wave of riots. If you're now fired up and thinking about going and rioting in Tottenham or elsewhere, do drop us a line on Twitter because we'd love to know just how far it's gone. Yeah. It's- also, it would be great to see Boris Johnson turn up with another brush again and just start vaguely pushing oh, it at a broken yeah. shop window or something. Yeah. Those are my favourite Boris Johnson moments when he ineffectually mops or brushes something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, spend, spends more time on his hair. Yeah, it's uh, at date underscore fight. Yes. And do let us know if you want to start scoring again, because we're not going to start unless you make us. No, absolutely we're not. But we are we are needy, and we do like to be liked, so if you really want it back, we will do it. <laughs> we will definitely do it instantly, thank you. Absolutely no question, please like us. So uh, that's it for today's date fight. Uh, do like us on Facebook, but also... <laughs> In reality, just like us. Just generally, please like please us. Please like us. We need it. Yes, we do. That's why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. And we will be back tomorrow for another date fight. If you could subscribe and share, and uh, you know, if you find yourself down in I don't know some kind of place where you've got a lot of internet connected <laughs> devices, uh, appliances, uh, maybe some kind of store or something. Yeah. If you sign them all up. Yeah, just subscribe uh, on all device. of those devices. If you work uh, in a factory which makes smartphones. That's a great idea, yeah. Perhaps you run a repair shop. Mm. Why not install it on every appliance that comes under your... Yeah. Perhaps your child yeah. leaves their iPad lying around. Just subscribe on that. Yeah. Uh, perhaps you have suggestible elderly relatives. <laughs> OK, I'm going to stop right now. Yeah. Uh, thank just you very much. Phone. We would... Yeah. <laughs> yes. No. Bad. <laughs> Bad date fight. Bad, bad nap, bad Jacob. We will see you tomorrow. Bye bye. Bye. Hello, I'm 
Alex von Tanzelman. And I'm Hannah Gregg. And we're here to tell you about the History Film Club. The History Film Club is a new podcast about history and films and history in films and films in history. Every week we'll talk to an expert like Stephen McGann, Amanda Vickery or Dan Snow. We'll find out their fictional favourites and historical hates and whether they can prove to us they deserve membership of The, the History, history Film, Film Club. Club. The History Film Club is available from December the 28th wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now to make sure you never miss an episode.